Morning. I hope you found that video helpful as a summary of this whole book of the Exodus and also the series we've been in, looking at how God draws us out to draw us in. And today we're going to conclude our series by looking at Exodus chapter 40. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 40. And we're going to see what the purpose of the Exodus actually was. We're going to finish the series by looking at the thing to which the whole story was building all along, which is not ultimately that... God would just free us from slavery and leave us wandering around, but that God would welcome us into his presence. He wanted to draw us out, to draw us in, to have relationship and friendship with us. And that's always been God's heart. And we're going to be in Exodus 40 and see how it plays out here. But it's always been God's heart from the Garden of Eden onwards when God is walking with humans in the cool of the day, right through to the very last chapter of Scripture where the whole of the cosmos has become a temple. And where the voice from the throne says, now the dwelling place of God is with humanity. That God's purpose for us, for the human race, has been not just that he would liberate us. He doesn't just want to save you from slavery and death and even sin. He does, but that's not the end of it. He wants to draw you out in order to draw you in. That you would experience friendship with him, love in him. That you'd experience life by being in his presence. That's God's goal, and so that's where the Exodus story, if you like, culminates, and it's where we're going to spend our time this morning, and it's actually not only the case that God wants to live with us, it's also the case that we, in the deepest depths of our heart, want to live with God. That is the deepest longing of the human heart, whether people are believers in Jesus at the moment or not, actually, that we... There is something in us that wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life and behold him in his temple. It's been made part of who we are. And some of us feel that intuitively. Some of us are very aware of that sense. Moses himself is like that in Exodus chapter 33. If your presence doesn't go with me, don't send us up from here. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. If you are not with me, please show me your glory, Lord. That's where Moses is. And Some of us may feel that way this morning. We may be saying, yeah, I I really want the presence of God. I know that that's what I'm made for. But some of us don't, don't get to a place of thinking that what we really want is the presence of God very easily at all. In fact, some of us, it takes many years. Some of us may, if you like, wander in life, and I did for some time, and many of us will have for some time, to effectively trying to find joy everywhere else until finding finally, that all the things we were looking for was found in the presence of God. But we didn't know that. And we didn't find that out until we found that none of these other things satisfied us. So the greatest African philosopher of all time, and arguably the greatest Christian theologian of all time, St. Augustine, he wrote his most important work on this subject. He, it's a really, it's a sort of spiritual autobiography and prayer of how he came to realize that all of the things that this world offers, selfish pursuits and sex and education and honor and wealth and esteem, that none of them actually satisfied him. And then he made this astonishing statement at the very opening of his book to sort of summarize his book, The Confessions. He said, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is, I've looked everywhere in this world to try and find rest and peace and wholeness, and I found that none of those places I looked actually fulfilled on on their promise, except the presence of God, and that's where I found rest for my soul. 
And some of us know that restlessness even today. Some of us feel the restlessness, but we haven't yet come to a place of finding it satisfied for us in God. We haven't found a solution to the restlessness. We haven't yet realized that the presence of God is what we are pining for. I often think of that line from Jim Carrey, the actor Jim Carrey, where he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. I think a lot of people in this city are like that. We are wandering, looking for, saying, actually, if I got that and then that and then that, I'd get what I wanted. I'd be, I'd be okay. That would, I would find rest for my soul. And yet we're still discovering that those things don't quite deliver and that the presence of God is ultimately what we need. It's the, the end of our, all of our longings. And all of us ultimately are only going to find true rest and joy when we find it in the presence of God. And that is where the whole Exodus story has been heading. He draws us out to draw us in. So much of the second half of Exodus is actually about the building of the house of God, which in this context is called the tabernacle. It's a a large tent, and it's summarized in chapter 40. And so we're going to, even though much of the second half of Exodus is actually about the building of and the commissioning of this tabernacle, we're going to read the summary of all of that, if you like, in Exodus chapter 40, beginning at verse 16. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, and set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, and put it into the ark, that's a wooden if you like, that's the, the, the box of acacia wood. And put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they didn't set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of God. 
Many of us, I suspect, find the architectural sections of the Bible a bit boring. If we're honest, some might find them very boring. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One is that they are spatially quite hard to imagine. If you're not very good at imagining architecture in your head from plans, then imagining space is difficult. And if you are not very good spatially in the first place, which I am most definitely not, then you find it really hard to imagine what this thing looks like. Um, I am so spatially unaware that my colleagues in my previous job decided that they would investigate how far I would not be able to notice something of, of size in my office. And so my office, which is about three or, four square me- three or four meters by three or four meters, they came in and they put a dead tree that was taller than I was in the office to see if I would notice it was there. And about six weeks later at Staff Coffee, they all had a good laugh at my expense when it turned out I hadn't realized it was there. So I'm very, very spatially weak. So when I read passages like this, I find it very hard to imagine what this looks like. And some of you may therefore find the building sections of the Bible a little bit dull because it's hard to picture them. And you also may theologically be wondering, why is this here? Why do we care? Why does it matter that this is what it looked like? I don't understand what this means. Now, theologically, the reason it matters is because we're talking about the presence of God talking about where and how God lives with his people. This is where the Lord lives. And every detail, as we will see, communicates something about our relationship with him and how we experience his presence. So that's the reason it matters. But if you find passages like this difficult because of the spatial imagination side of things, then I'm hoping that this sketch, which is taken from the ESV Study Bible, which I think is outstanding, and I use a lot on the app, I've downloaded, I think it's hugely helpful. And I find this, this sketch of what it's like really helps me just earth what's being said in an, in an imaginary picture that helps me make sense of where everything is. So if you look at it, there are three main zones, if I can put it this way. And you can see the zone, two of the zones divided by that curtain that's, if you like, in the center of the drawing. The, the most holy place is like the sort of high security zone. That's like the very beating heart of things. And the most holy place, which is the innermost part to the if you like, to the left of the picture as you're looking at it, the most holy place contains the Ark of the Covenant, that is the box that's about four foot by two foot by two foot, that contains the dwelling place of God. God lives, if you like, just above it, over the mercy seat, which is the gold lid with cherubs hammered out on it. And inside the Ark, at this point, are the Ten Commandments. A couple of other things are added later. And so we have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where God meets human beings inside the most holy place. That's, if you like, or over there on the left-hand side of the drawing. Then the second zone of the three is what you can see in the rest of the diagram, which is the tent of meeting, sometimes called the holy place. That is the, the area, if you like, where you go through, if you're allowed, in order to approach the most holy place. And the tent of meeting contains three things as well. It contains the golden altar of incense, which is a place where the, where the fragrant offering, if you like, the aroma is created, and that's right next to the curtain. And then you find the golden lampstand, which is that sort of tree-like lampstand that you've probably seen before. As a, it's often a common Jewish symbol. And then there is the table and the bread of the presence on the other side. And so there are those three things, if you like, inside the tent of meeting, and then the third, so the innermost zone, the most holy place, then you have the holy place, and then outside that, which is not on the drawing, you have the court of the tabernacle, which contains a bronze altar on which things are sacrificed, often animals, but sometimes grain as well. 
There is a bronze altar of sacrifice, and then there is a basin, which is there for the priests to wash their hands and their feet as they approach God. And that's, so that's what we have, the three zones, the most holy place, the holy place, and then the court. And all of these elements communicate something to us. They actually tell us a story, if you like, about how Israel approaches God in worship and about how we do. So let's walk through the tabernacle and walk through the tent and see how Israel, and in many ways how we, approach God in his presence. How, do we, how are we drawn into the presence of God? And you'll see as we, as we do that that this is describing how Israel do it, and there's a lot of similarities with how we do, but in many ways the way we approach the presence of God is far better for a beautiful reason we will see in a moment. So what would happen is if you start in the outside bit and head towards the most holy place, you would start, if you like, entering the court. Which is the, so there would be, a, if you like, an entrance to the wide outside court. You're in the open air at this point. You haven't yet reached the tent. And you're in the open air. And as you walk in, you come in with an offering of some sort as a worshiper. Right? You and I, we're in Israelites, and we want to come and approach the presence of God. We come in with an offering. It might be a bull or a ram or a goat or a pair of doves if we're poor, or maybe grain. And we, we bring that in that offering with a view to sacrificing to God. And that offering has cost us something. Right? It, it represents our livelihood. We are not rich people. And so we come with a heart of thanksgiving and say, God, you've given to me. I want to give to you. Here is the best I have. The offering is then inspected by the priest. The priest will review, for instance, you bring a ram. The priest will inspect the ram and see if it is spotless and if it is blemish-free. Because you're not going to give an offering to God that is distorted or deformed. So you bring the best and God inspects the animal. doesn't inspect the worshipper, inspects the animal. Um, and if it is perfect and spotless, then it is killed and then burned on the bronze altar as a pleasing aroma to God. And so that you're in the outside bit in the court, in the open air, and the fire goes up to God and takes your offering to him, if you like. But as Israelites, we remain at a distance. We don't approach the ark ourselves. We, we don't go anywhere near the tent and the most holy place ourselves. We have made our sacrifice, and then we're done. Instead, what happens is the priest... The qualified person, the priest, first, basically they take the offering and then they wash themselves in the basin and then they will often take the blood of the offering we've made and walk towards the tent and then put the blood on the tent as if to say that sacrifice has taken place and therefore we can now approach God. And so the blood would be on the tent doorway, if you like, the curtain, in order that they could go through on our behalf, because we're not allowed in, we're not priests. But the priest can, and the priest goes into the, to the tent of meeting. And inside the tent of meeting, they are then surrounded, as you can see on this, if you like, the same drawing, but now with different headings, you can see inside the tent of meeting, there are three things. There is the bread on the table, and that represents the provision of God, that God is a God of generosity and kindness and love who is providing for his people and sustaining them as they travel. There is an altar with incense on it, which represents prayer. That is the pleasing aroma of the prayers of the people and this beautiful incense, sweet smell filling the tent. That represents the fact that we approach the presence of God, not just to receive provision from him and to celebrate that, but also in prayer. And that as we approach God in prayer, God is made manifest to us. And then, of course, there is the tree-like lampstand, which represents the tree of life. It's 
The, God's presence is a place of provision and prayer and also of life. It's just as we enter the presence of God, things spring to life within us, within the world. That's how life comes to his creation. And that's what the priest would see. But even the priest is not allowed through the second curtain, except one priest once a year. Once a year, and only then, the high priest, and only him, is allowed into the most holy place. There is a veil which separates the priesthood from the pure, glorious presence of God, except on the Day of Atonement. And then on that once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place through the second curtain with some trepidation, I suspect. And it contained the ark, that is the presence of God, which contains the Ten Commandments, that is the word of God, and is covered by the mercy seat, that is the grace of God, the way in which God's holiness interacts with our fallen humanity. On that day, and that day only, A human being stands in God's perfect presence on behalf of the nation. So there are the three layers. We are outside. We're in the court. The priests have gone into the second level, but actually only the high priest and only once can go into the most holy place and meet God face to face. That's how Israel did it. But now consider how that story that God is telling Israel and us through these symbols is fulfilled for us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to come, I do anyway, we want to come into the presence of God, right? We want to come into the presence of God, and that requires a sacrifice. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has made his sacrifice available to us. So when we want to come close to God, we come in with a sacrifice. But the sacrifice has been handed to us in the form of the Lord Jesus. And an inspection takes place as we approach God in worship. But the inspection that takes place is not the inspection of you and me and our moral character on that day. The inspection that takes place is an inspection of whether or not Jesus is pure and spotless and perfect. The priest is not poking around in your life to see whether you qualify to approach the living God in worship. The priest is poking around in Jesus' life in the picture. Do you see what I mean? He's looking at Jesus saying, is he pure, is he spotless, is he sinless, is he perfect in every way? And because he is, you're allowed in. And then, as our great high priest, because Jesus in this amazing fulfillment is not only the sacrifice, he's also the priest. Jesus, as our great high priest, who has been washed, actually in, literally washed with water in his baptism as well to fulfill all righteousness, he then takes his own blood and approaches the veil of the curtain of the presence of God. And he applies his blood to the heavenly tent and opens for us a new and living way through the curtain that we can approach God. And as he does that, in his death, the veil of the temple curtain, in Jesus' day was a lot bigger than the one you've seen on the diagram because it was in a temple which was much larger. And in Jesus' day, the veil of the temple was 60 foot high and three inches thick. And as Jesus dies, instantly the veil of the temple curtain is torn in half. Rent in twain is how the old translations used to put it. And this massive symbol of the unapproachability and holiness of God is left crumpled in a heap on the floor and makes God's presence open for us once and for all. Not on the basis of my moral purity, but on the basis of his perfect sacrifice and his priestly fulfillment of all that the Levitical priests were supposed to do. 
And I enter the presence of God in that way. I enter the presence of God through the blood of another sacrifice and through the work of another priest. And as a result, I am able to stand in the tent of meeting, in God's presence. I am welcomed in to the tent of meeting, and I am allowed to, if you like, given an access all areas pass to the presence of God. No longer do I have to stand outside and observe others going in for me. I now am allowed to enter the presence of God, trusting simply in the righteousness of Jesus. And I might now imagine being in that heavenly tent of meeting and just looking around and reviewing those symbols and thinking, what does this mean for me now as I approach the presence of God? And how do I make the most of being one who can approach the presence of God? So I look around me and I, I see a table. So as I'm walking into the tent, I, on my right I can see a table with bread on it. That's what we saw, isn't it? The table with the bread of the presence. And the bread symbolizes the miraculous way in which God has provided everything we need. And actually Israel experienced that daily as they prayed, as they trusted God to provide manna from heaven, and he did. You and I experience it daily as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. But we also have it whenever we walk into a church building and see a table laid out with bread and wine, representing the fact that God has given to us everything we need, not just the food for our mouths, but the body and blood of the Lord Jesus in order to make us whole. And we experience, as we enter the presence of God, we experience the table and the bread, and we experience communion with God. That is, union, togetherness, participation in Jesus. So we see the bread of the presence. Then we look straight ahead of us and we see the altar of incense. And that reminds us that we, as we approach God, we approach God in and through prayer. That the presence of God is a place of prayer in which our thanksgiving and our confession of our sins and our requests and our praise all come together and rise to God and fill the air with sweetness. God loves it when we pray. We don't pray to get points with God. We pray because we want to experience the presence of God as we do at the table, as we do in prayer. And of course, then we look to our left and we see this tree-like lampstand and recognize, actually, yes, the presence of God is a place where we find life. And we look at the tree-like lampstand and we think, hang on a second, Jesus said that we, the people of God, we are the light of the world, that we are the branches who have been grafted into this tree We, the churches, are the golden lampstands, as John says later in Scripture. The trees of life among whom Jesus walks in the cool of the day. That is, the lampstand starts to represent the church. It starts to represent the people of God experiencing the life of God and shining out for all the world to see. And then, having considered those symbols, I look ahead of me through the torn curtain, if you like, and see the ark of God himself with the mercy seat and the glory cloud and the very words of God written on stone And we see how the Spirit of God and the Word of God written and the grace of God over the mercy seat all come together in one in the person of Jesus. And we marvel as we look around us at all of these symbols. We marvel that as we trust in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and have all of our impurity washed away in Him and as we share the bread of His presence and as we pray and as we gather as the church and as we read the Word and experience His Spirit, we get to experience the presence of God Himself, His Spirit, His gracious mercy towards us 
and his glory revealed to us. And that's why the passage ends as it does with verses 33 to 34. So Moses finished the work, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is such a beautiful expression of what is to come. So Jesus, like Moses, finished the work. And then 50 days later, his Holy Spirit, in tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind, descended upon the tent, the people of God at Pentecost, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and spread out into the world in ever-increasing glory. We are the tabernacle. We are God's temple. We are the people of the presence. And he has drawn us out in order to draw us in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence. We thank you so much that the thing that we deeply desire to know and be known by God, to experience fellowship and communion with you, is the same thing that you deeply desire. And the same thing that will one day certainly be true of everything created. Lord, we are so thankful for your presence at work within us. And we pray that even now as we experience your presence, as we sing, as we speak, as we eat and drink, as we pray, that you would draw us closer and closer in to the presence of the living God made available to us through Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.